Welcome to the 2045 podcast. My name is Sofia, and I am a young person who's very interested in exponential technologies like quantum computing, artificial intelligence, blockchain, synthetic biology, gene editing, and more. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Sion, a young 18-year-old innovator working at the intersection of machine learning and biochemistry, which is the topic that we'll be talking about in this episode. So a few facts about him. This spring, he's going to be interning at Nurix Therapeutics, a public biotech company in San Francisco, aiming to discover immuno-oncology drugs. He's also currently working on cutting-edge applications for drug discovery using machine learning as a research intern in the Matter Lab at the University of Toronto. His work is supported by Emergent Ventures Fellowship and the Thiel Foundation. In the past, he's also worked at Integrate AI, building out SaaS AI products for Fortune 500 companies. So you can tell that this is going to be pretty exciting. I am very excited to talk to you, Sion. So let's get started. So hi, Sion. How are you? Uh, it's great to have you on the show. I have been looking forward to meeting you and learning a lot about the projects that you're working on, this very interesting field. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, yeah, really excited to sort of dive deep into it. Okay, sure. So let's get started right away. And the first question is, how would you describe computational biochemistry to a five-year-old? Yeah, so I, I think the best way we can think about it is essentially the way I like to sort of phrase it is teaching computers to learn chemistry. Um, and the main reason I look at it is uh, look at it that way is you're essentially teaching these models on a, a lot of data. So you have, say, data about molecules and maybe, say, you have a data about, say, say a thousand molecules and whether it binds to, like, a given protein target. And basically by training it on any sort of computational model, you're trying to essentially teach the model about what specific patterns in molecules tend to mean that it's more likely to bind to a given protein target. Um, so obviously there's like a lot of I deeper level statistics and math and computer science which goes into it, but uh, it, it, it really boils down to, to basically using a lot of labeled data and structural data about say molecules and protein structures to try to tell to try to inform us about how this say molecule's 3D structure will be, how it binds to a protein. When you look at, say, for example, a small molecule binding to a protein, the analogy I like to use from like a, stu- a structural perspective is it's like a key fitting into a lock. So you, you have to figure out when you, you have to, if you're looking at the problem of drug target binding with computational models, you're basically trying to figure out at what, for example, what 3D orientation you want a molecule to be positioned at in order to fit into this lock or protein. Um, so I, I think you can kind of think of it as these proteins having different binding pockets or different gaps within a within a protein which a molecule can effectively fit and bind into. Um, and then based off of that, once you have a molecule that can bind, you can you can sort of have it do whatever you want. You can have it, for example, inhibit the function of that protein. Um, but you you basically the biggest hardest problem that we're trying to solve with these computational models is helping us screen through the massive amount of existing molecules there are to try to tell us which ones are likely to effectively bind to proteins and be really strong drug candidates, um, sort of looking at computer science and drug discovery. 
Wow, that sounds really amazing because you actually were, you know, came up with all these analogies like uh, the pockets and the locks and um, also like teaching computers, chemistry. I think this is going to be very uh, easy to understand for other people who are not very familiar in the field. And, you know, that's the purpose of this episode, to actually get to know what AI is being able to do in this field of uh, drug discovery. But actually, um, what I previously thought is that machine learning applied to um, this protein discovery and those kind of things, like computational biochemistry was only about drug discovery. But then I was talking to you earlier and you told me that there were other interesting applications in the field. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think the I think the I think the biggest thing is the field I sort of work in is, is really, really newly established. I think I saw this graph of the number of publications in this field at different top machine learning conferences like iClear or NeurIPS. And these are sort of the venues where the top machine learning papers are typically at. And if you look at it, I think five years ago in 2015, um, well, six years ago now, there were virtually zero papers published in the fields of chemistry and machine learning. Uh, but since then, I think last year, there was over 30 papers, which is quite a bit in the scope of these, these, these incredibly selective conferences. So I think it's, since it's such a new sort of field, there is actually, I would say, like there's no set sort of term for the field, if you think about it. Some people tend oh. to use molecular machine learning. Some people go with computational chemistry. Um, and so I, I think the broadest, the, the, to start off the most broadly, I would go with computational chemistry, which sort of can specify, you could use machine learning models under that, but you can use purely purely non-machine learning. So you can look at just these, these, uh, these pure sort of computational algorithms for representing molecules, for example. Um, but going into your question, within computational <laughs> chemistry, I would say there's a lot of fields beyond drug discovery where there's a lot of good work being done. So I think within basic and pure chemistry, you can look at even things like reaction prediction and, um, for example, predicting the yield of a reaction. That's something that people have worked on with research. So these sort of common chemicals, these common problems that you would say look in, be looking at as, say, an industrial chemist. Um, there's also things like looking at material science, and sort of developing and discovering new materials like polymers. And so that's another field that there's a lot of interesting research in. The, the other field outside of drug discovery that I think is a really, really emerging field is battery design. Um, okay. So looking at how we can design new batteries, um, for example, electric vehicles. And there's actually a lot of good work being done in machine learning for battery design, um, which is being done by this professor at Carnegie Mellon called Venkit Vishwanathan. Um, so he, he's, he's done some really awesome work. And I think there's so there's there's so many different fields that are sort of loosely applying com computer science and chemistry to solve like many, many different problems. And they've been doing so for like many decades, I think since the 60s or 70s, um, there has been work in sort of this computational chemistry field. I would say molecular machine learning or, or machine learning applied to chemistry is something that's only really come up very recently, though, in the last five years. Um, so uh, I think that's how I would really roughly characterize it. I think within drug discovery, uh, to try to really specify and hone in there, I think the most active problems where there's a lot of work being done is molecular property prediction, where say given a certain property, um, like, I don't know, toxicity or drug, uh, drug binding affinity, you have this model and you basically aim to predict for a given molecule, how likely, or for example, how likely it'll bind or whether that molecule is toxic, and uh, so there's a lot of these standard data sets that anyone can actually use 
and train machine learning models with that are publicly available, um, like Talks Twenty One, and uh, so that's a field where there's a lot of really a ton of research because of the fact that these data sets are available for anyone um, with a computer to really get their hands on. Uh, the other field I would say that's really widely being uh, has a lot of research is looking into reaction prediction. So given say two reactants, I want to predict the products. Kind of like when you look at like a senior level chemistry class, you, you're basically oh, given this this these two molecules predict the product. Um, so we can do the same thing with these computational models. I, I think the areas where machine learning has a lot of promise in the future, I think, are figuring out how to jointly model chemistry and biological properties. So when you're looking at, for example, I told you that key and lock analogy with small molecules and proteins, you it, right now a lot of the models are just looking at the molecular structure. For, but what if we could find ways to also encode protein structure and directly jointly model both? Theoretically, that should give us a, like this model a lot more insight when you're thinking about the whole phrase of teaching computers to really solve this problem. Uh, if you theoretically, if you give them more information, they should perform better, right? So mm -hmm. hopefully, if we can figure out ways to say jointly model these biological and chemical properties, that may help us unlock solving a lot of these tougher um, biological targets for cancer and um, a lot of these open research areas. And I think the other area is generative drug discovery. So take instead of looking at existing molecules, literally generating new drugs um, using computational modeling, which I think is the most exciting area that is still really hard. And, and I think the first problem when, when researchers tried to tackle this was actually getting the, mo the model to generate valid chemicals that like follow the rules of bonding and like basic chemistry. Um, but now I think we're, we're at, we've actually got into a point where if you look into some of these models, um, like uh, graph neural networks, they can virtually generate molecules which are 100% valid, um, like all of their generative sets. Um, so now we're actually moving towards the next problem in generative modeling, which is looking at generating drugs that are, say, for example, highly uh, highly desirable, for example, because they, they bind to a target or are not toxic or are uh, in general have like a, a good sort of, uh, they're really similar to existing drugs in terms of their chemical structure. Um, so this is sort of an area where I think there is an opportunity to really reinvent how we even like synthesize and, and produce new molecules and new drugs. Um, so those are sort of the four, I think, rough areas that I would look at um, in terms of classifying drug discovery with machine learning. This could get a little bit technical really quickly, so I just want yeah. to briefly ask you, also taking into account what to say that the field is very new and sometimes people don't even know what to name it, um, what do you think are the kinds of backgrounds that can get into the play, like we've mentioned that we can use artificial intelligence and that we also need knowledge in chemistry and sometimes in biology, so which would you say are kind of the different kinds of people, let's say, that can get involved in this, into this field? Yeah, I, I think the one thing I really try to stress is that hopefully anyone can get involved. Um, <laughs> I, I think especially if you're coming at this from a young age, I mean, you can do anything. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think there shouldn't be any limit for anything you want to do, including this. Um, but I would say that the, the really interesting area uh, sort of background is there's obviously people who are pure chemists, mm -hmm. um, like say traditional chemists in grad school who are now looking at looking into machine learning to model, um, for example, reaction prediction in some of these traditional pure chemistry research areas. Um, like, 
discovering new possible reactions as, as one example. So I think people who are from a more strong biochemistry background or who maybe in, in middle school or high school were really interested in bio, biology chemistry can tackle it. Um, and I think people, the other type of people are obviously people like me, I think, who maybe in middle school or earlier in high school were very interested in the, 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 the computer science part of it. Um, where you're you're basically coming from a perspective of really enjoying computer science and math and sort of wanting to use those skills to solve an important problem, which I, I think was my motivation. And I think the goal is to really try to democratize this field, um, yeah. to try to open up and create more tools such that it, you don't want it getting to sort of a place where all of the interesting work is being done behind closed doors in like a pharmaceutical company like. Uh, so I, I think to try to avoid that, I think there's some really awesome open source projects. Um, that people can take a look at to try to get it, to try to learn more about them. Uh, and this is sort of, I think, shameless self-promotion. Um, but there is a project called DeepChem, which mm-hmm. is basically this open source library. You can find it on, on GitHub if you just search DeepChem. And it's basically, it, it offers a, a bunch of different models, which you can directly, you, you don't have to code them from scratch. You can directly call these models and you can do anything with them. You can predict protein, lig- like ligand protein binding affinity, you can look at predicting toxicity, and it, it allows you to look out, you can generate new molecules, you can do run molecular dynamic simulations, and there are, I think the best place to start is there, there is a ton of tutorials there, including some that I've helped make myself. And so there's over like 25 so far, and they walked through a lot of the different applications I talked about, like giving in your previous question. Um, and I think that's a really good, great place to start because you can really see directly the code and what the output is because you're using something called a Jupyter Notebook. And Jupyter Notebooks in Python allow you to see the code and then directly see the output and visualize the output, which is a really great model for learning. Um, so I think DeepChem is a really great place to start. And my hope is with more open source projects and sort of these open source drug discovery efforts, um, it'll sort of democratize the access for anyone with a computer to try to add value to the field. Um, but I would say, in terms of general advice for getting trying to get involved in this field, I think if you have, have a, a really good computer science and I think math background, I think that'll just really help. Because when you read a lot of the papers, um, I think it's best to start off either in pure chemistry or in pure machine learning, uh, or like say for example, someone who's like purely re- interested in like the, the the biochemical research, or someone who's purely interested in the ML research, and then to sort of branch off from there and get involved. Because that way you understand how you're not approaching it from a perspective where I think when you read these papers um, as a practice, if you don't, if you sort of don't have I think at least one side which is your strong suit, at least for me the the one thing that I, I notice is you basically don't have the, the at least like one half of the paper where you that's your safe place where you, okay I understand what this architecture is or on the other side I understand what reaction or what experiment they're conducting here, right so. If that way you can at least learn the other half. So I, I would say try to pick one side to approach it from. I know with McKen, he was really interested, for example, McKen, who was, I think, just to get some context, the previous uh, speaker on this podcast, he was really interested in more structural biochemistry and structural bio. And then he started to learn more about the computer science side and then applied machine learning. And I think for me, it was the opposite, where I was really interested in computer science and I spent a ton of years just looking into pure computer science and building projects in that space um, and then doing internships in that space. And I think that helped me because I had that background. Um, So definitely try to develop that base. 
And talking about the projects you've built, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because you actually uh, uh, skipped to my, which was going to be my other question. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah I think it's awesome advice for everyone listening. Actually knowing what the process is of getting started in this field, whether you're interested in the um, scientific aspect of it or the more technological one, I think, uh, as you said, it's always a good opportunity. And now, as I was saying, we can get into the projects that you've built. You told me once that you were working with a scientist at uh, University of Toronto, so that sounds very interesting. Uh, what's kind of the research that uh, is being done? Or maybe firstly mentioning what are some of the projects that you've worked on by yourself maybe that you think may be a good place to start? Yeah, for sure. I, I think um, to try to give like a, a brief like background into how I got into it, just to give a certain example for people, um, just to give some context just to what my background is. I, I think, like I mentioned, I was really interested in computer science in middle school. Um, so I spent a lot of time sort of building more actually robotics projects. And uh, I don't know if anyone's heard of a Raspberry Pi here, but they're basically <laughs> these mini computers that are uh, really, really affordable and they allow you to to sort of run mini pro programming projects on those. You can build like a radio um, from a Raspberry Pi or you, you can do a bunch of really interesting things with them. Yeah. So that was sort of my interest and background. And, I, and then when I get, went to high school, um, I went to see this talk I think in around my freshman end of freshman year um, by this professor called Brennan Frey. And he was basically, he's the founder of this company called Deep Genomics. And they were basically applying deep learning towards, or deep learning or machine learning towards uh, discovering these therapies for rare genetic diseases, like Wilson's disease. And the, just to give a really short overview of what the problem is, basically when you look at a rare disease, a rare genetic disease, you only have like a really small patient base, like maybe 20,000 people who even have the mutation in the world. So when you're trying to commercially make a therapy for that, you often run into the case where because it's so expensive, it can cost like, it, it ends up costing like almost one or $2 million to actually uh, per dose or per treatment, a round of treatment for like a patient to get access to these. And that was the case with a drug called Spinraza uh, for muscular dystrophy. So I, he, he was basically working on a company which uses deep learning to identify these potential pathogenic or disease causing targets, and then uh, sort of use computational models to also design the gene therapies called oligonucleotide uh, therapies to target these uh, diseases that say, for example, are due to splicing mutations, as one example. Um, so I was really, really interested in how he, I mean, that was definitely much more biological than chemistry, but I was really interested in how you could actually make an impact in these fields using computer science, which I didn't really think I could do before. So I, I think from then I, I got really, I was still involved in pure machine learning, I think, until my sophomore year. So I did, I, I did a previous internship at an enterprise software company. So I, I basically got really comfortable with pure machine learning and uh, also basically developing machine learning for users and building these sort of products. Um, and then afterwards in grade 11, I think talking about DeepChem, I got involved with this open source project called the DeepChem project, which essentially is trying to build essentially this library that anyone can use to try to create value in, in drug discovery and do research in this field. Um, so there's this, like open to anyone, there's this weekly developer meetings that you can basically go to where you have this really awesome community of people across the world that are con contributing to this library, that are building in new models, uh, building new ways to 
to, to sort of represent these, these uh, biological data sets and all making it all open source. So that was my way of sort of getting into working on these problems um, directly, even though I wasn't working at, say, a company solving these problems, I was able to do it um, using an open source project. So that sort of gave me my my sort of my start. And then uh, from there, with their mentorship and I think the mentorship of the co-creator, uh, Bharat, I, I got to basically then do a summer internship with uh, the professor at UFT or University of Toronto called Alan Asper Guzik. And his lab is basically looking into uh, essentially trying to accelerate the discovery of new medicine molecules or materials. Um, that's sort of like the mission statement. So there's people in the lab working on quantum computing, people in the lab working on machine learning, and there's people who are more like on the traditional chemistry side um, that are all looking looking into looking into discovering or designing new materials and designing new drugs essentially. Uh, and so I, I got I got managed to work on the machine learning subgroup where I actually worked on something that was actually more pure programming, um, which I think is also was also a good experience. Where basically we developed this project that's a new way to take molecules and represent them as a series of characters, or basically represent them as text. Oh. So it's called selfies. Um, and so it's basically this, this new string representation that you can, that essentially the goal is you can take these text representations, feed them into machine learning models, and when you apply them, for example, to generative machine learning tasks, uh, the output is always going to be 100% valid because of the way we programmed it uh, to have a set of grammar. If you think about like in English or any other language, we have a set of grammar for example, which ones are vowels, which ones are consonants. Uh, like or how to like structure a sentence, we do the same thing with these with molecules, and we sort of establish a new grammar for representing like a type of bond, the the atom, the formal charge, all of these different chemical details. That's so, so that cool. was a good experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was awesome because I got to directly work on the programming. So I think that's another thing that I sort of learned. I think it's really it's I think at first it's really easy to get started and just take a model from. PyTorch. There's a lot of great software. You can just literally, within a couple lines of code, take a model and just apply it to a problem and then train it and then get a result. But when you go under the hood and you learn about, oh, how can we actually find good ways to represent molecules? Because that might be the area where we can find better achieving uh, performance on these really hard problems. That was a really awesome experience. So that was, I think I worked on a couple of other projects there. Um, I can't talk about all of them yet, but sure. <laughs> uh, that was, I think, the one that's, it's an open source library, it's, it's called Selfies. Um, so if you search up, like, Selfies, uh, <laughs> Molecule, and then, like, Alan Asper Music, you'll probably get the GitHub library. Um, there is a blog post that maybe I'll, I'll send over, which, uh, which maybe you can link. Um, sure. But yeah, so that was awesome. And uh, I think that's the main project I've been working on. The other project that was sort of culminated in a paper was basically looking at taking these ways of representing molecules as essentially a, a text and then feeding them into language models, so language-based modeling or sequence modeling. So the best way I can sort of explain this intu intuitively is when you, I think everyone has heard of like Siri or Cortana or, or a lot of these voice assistants that essentially directly rely on the words you are saying and then give you some resolve for what you're searching for. Um, and even I think another example is a Google search where you basically are able to type something in and it's able to retrieve the most relevant results. And so these are all done by using these natural language processing algorithms, like a, a transformer, which 
are actually these models that allow you to take, say, a, a sequence or a bunch of text and then do things like train that and generate new text or predict some value about that given uh, sequence. And so I, I wanted to figure out, using my previous experience, I wanted to see, could we take these language models that are being developed by Google or OpenAI um, that are that are breaking like sort of like a really really crazy in terms of they can generate like human level text and they can write at like a human level um, and can we apply that to chemistry and teach these again sort of same analogy of teach these models to learn chemistry um, and then get them to predict their interesting properties about molecules like uh, biochemical toxicity or blood brain barrier penetrability or all these tough problems which scientists have a lot of trouble with with getting molecules that are that are good at, at bypassing these uh, issues. Um, so that was, that sort of culminated in like a research paper um, called Kimberta, and uh, we also wanted to make this entirely open source, so anyone can actually open up the tutorial um, on DeepChem and actually directly use the Kimberta model and and do anything like predict biochemical toxicity for any molecule in the world, um, or predict, for example, given any molecule. Uh, predict blood-brain barrier penetrability, um, among many other tasks, and so that that sort of culminated in a, a paper, which was my first time publishing a paper. So that was an awesome experience, and I think I think that's sort of like a, a I think the two major projects I've done. I, I did some pet projects before, but I think th those were all something that I think really started with the DeepChem project, um, and basically playing around with a lot of the tutorials, which is why I also recommend it because that's how I learned. So yeah. Nice. Quite some time working on this, which is great because you can talk about your experience. And walking towards the end of the podcast, I want to ask you what you think the future of this kind of field, uh, because I can say it's a single technology, it's actually combining lots of different knowledge from different fields. Yeah. But uh, what do you think is the future of this? And when I ask that question, I basically mean what is one breakthrough or one just discovery that really makes you excited and makes you think like, this has a future, this is going to change the world in some way. Yeah, for sure. I think um, there there is one paper that, I think there's two different things I'm thinking of, but I think I want to talk about the one which hasn't been mentioned before, um, which I think is basically this paper called Chemprop by MIT. And they essentially, the, the summary is that they use this machine learning model to, to actually predict, to discover a new antibiotic that works really, really well on a bunch of existing pathogens and bacteria. So when you look at antibiotics, we're actually sort of reaching a point where uh, antibiotic resistant, resistance is becoming a huge issue. I think it's estimated by 2050 that 10 million people a year will die due to these resistant infections. So we need to figure out ways to design new antibiotics as quickly as possible. So this paper actually uses a, basically a graph-based technique where you can sort of think of a molecule as a graph. When you look at how an atom bonds to another atom, that's basically like a node in a graph. And when you look at the edges within a graph, you can think of, think of that as a bond. So using this really simple notion of a graph being a molecule, they applied, they created a, a, a machine learning algorithm that basically can take these molecules and screen it for whether given this molecule, will it successfully inhibit the growth of this pathogen or this infection? And so by training it on a data set of basically these molecules or antibiotics on E. coli, they then took that model and they screened over 107 million different molecules. And they then discovered a new antibiotic called Halicid, 
Inhalacin is really, really effective on a bunch of pathogens, including this Balmoni pathogen, which has been classified by the World Health Organization as one of the pathogens we actually urgently need a new antibiotic for. So I think the reason why this is really unique from other papers is they're not only just taking a model and applying it to some public data set, but they're, they were able to go directly to a lab with this machine learning model and, and use it to actually have a real tangible outcome of this new antibiotic that can possibly save you know, so many lives. So I think that's, that was a breakthrough because we, we were able to take these models and have like a real clinical outcome. Or, or a real tangible outcome in drug discovery. So I think that's a paper that I would recommend everyone check out. Um, so I, I think the future of the field is really moving towards that because we'll have more people from like a pure science background, more people who are into wet lab biology, who are collaborating with computer scientists, just like they were on this paper, to sort of have this breakthrough, these new breakthroughs, which I think are gonna need people on both sides of the spectrum, people who are computationalists, and people who are experimentalists working in the lab. So I think that, that, that itself is a new model for drug discovery and my hope for the future. Cool. Now I think that's um, maybe a frequently asked question would be, what, uh, how, how is this going to impact kind of a pipeline for a drug uh, being discovered and then being taken to the market? Because we know that this is a very, very long process. And my question is if computational drug discovery is actually going to make a difference here or if maybe clinical trials are what make it a, such an expensive process and such a long process as well. So in short, the question is, how is this going to impact taking drugs to the market? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I'm great you asked. I'm really glad you asked that because when you look at a drug discovery pipeline, I think a huge chunk of the cost actually goes into clinical trials and and sort of human and mice models, like like basically testing it directly on humans and testing it on mice. Um, so that's where like half of the time, and I also think uh, a, a good chunk of the money goes. Um, and obviously when, you, when I talk about all the machine learning approaches I talked about before, they're all things that are to establish the drugs before they head into clinical trials. So looking at discovering these new drugs, which are promising or discovering the new targets for these drugs is where computational modeling goes into. So I think the way it's going to impact how drugs enter the market is my hope is the efficiency uh, of the overall process overall, because I think when you have these more targeted these targeted models that can sort of replace having to conduct these experiments, when you think about, for example, running a toxicity screen. So let's say I have, I don't know, 10,000 molecules. They're all promising for a given target. Um, and I want to, but I have to make sure that they're not toxic, right? They, they don't have some side effect that is going to show up in clinical trials and, and cause the whole thing to fail. So that itself, you have to run all of them in a lab and each one can cost like a, a couple thousand dollars to test each one, um, each molecule. And so that is uh, itself a pretty expensive and time consuming process. But looking at that specific case, if we just replace it with the computational model, which hopefully is just as accurate or close to being as accurate as an experimental model, you can then run all of those predictions in a matter of minutes and hopefully yield accurate predictions and then go from there with figuring with filtering out the ones that are likely to be turn out toxic anyways in an experimental screen. So I think the, the overall TLDR or the summary is really yeah. just we can do things faster and we can hopefully avoid having to experimentally test a, a huge uh, a huge chunk of the molecules. 
And um, the last part would really just be looking at chemical space. And so when I talk about chemical space, there are over 10 to the power of 65 different <laughs> synthesizable molecules in like the universe. <laughs> yeah. um, so you can't test all of those. Like you cannot experimentally go into a lab and test like a, a quadrillion or whatever number that is. <laughs> Um, you have to, and where computational models can, can solve this problem is they can sort of travel or explore this chemical space and, and, and get predictions for a huge chunk of models. Like, just like in that paper, they, they wouldn't have been able to test all 107 million molecules that they tested for that antibiotic to discover it. They did a computational screen, which allowed them to be a lot more efficient. So I think that's where it's going to hopefully allow us to get better compounds heading into clinical trials which I think hopefully down the line will lower the, the rate of failure that we see in clinical trials nowadays where so many molecules are failing after being developed for like five, six years and $100 million poured into them. Um, hopefully we have more confidence in them before they head into clinical trials. And now the last question is probably the most interesting one. If people have heard about um, the news of AlphaFold and DeepMind and what this company, which is kind of like Google's uh, brother or sister, um, they're working on some pretty amazing things they have, and they've had interesting results. So maybe you can tell us what DeepMind is working on and what this means for the industry, what this means for the future applications of this technology. Yeah, so I, I think what DeepMind, DeepMind is basically Google's, um, I think a subsidiary of Google, which is basically an AI research company. Um, so th what they were able to do is they were able to take this similar, like a, a, I think a graph attention model, they like to call it, and basically apply it to these protein structures and basically given like a set of amino acid sequence, like you have your amino acid sequence, which is a bunch of text for a protein, you essentially want to try to as closely accurately as possible uh, predict the 3D sort of coordinates of all the different atoms or all the different sub sort of particles that form this overall 3D protein. And so what they were able to do with this, this problem is they were able to model proteins with an incredible I think, level of resolution. Okay. So when you look at how you do this experimentally, you, you have to essentially look at, for example, X-ray crystallography or uh, uh, NMR, all of these experimental tests, which essentially are, are obviously time consuming and expensive. And those are saying, I think 95% accurate at predicting the coordinates. And what DeepMind was able to do was that it predicted within 80, I think 87% roughly accurate, or 80, I think they got like a score of 87 wow. uh, on this task. And I think why that's a really, really awesome score is it's within a couple percentage points of being as accurate as literally experimentally testing it. And the, the concept of being able to understand, just given a bunch of text about this protein, amino acid sequences, to predict how that protein is gonna turn and then fold into a 3D structure is an incredibly important problem that has basically been unsolved for 30 years yeah. until DeepMind came along and beat it. And I, I think it's also a testament to this research because of when they first released the first version of AlphaFold, this, this algorithm, like around three or four years ago, they, they were they were really good, but they were I think only I think at zero point six five or uh, they were still very far off from experimental level accuracy of getting three D structure. Um, but it, within two or three years, by applying a lot more compute, a lot more uh, compute power and and a lot more machinery and basically computation mm -hmm. to this, they were able to uh, like bump up that number like I think to over twenty percent. And so that that gives me not only a lot of hope for getting it to 
beyond experimental accuracy or at the level of experimental accuracy, but it gives me a lot of for the whole thing. If we can do this for protein structures, we can do this for molecular structures as well. And that's going to have a huge impact in drug discovery because we can try to, again, like I mentioned before, sort of phase out a lot of this expensive, time-consuming experimental testing or at least not have to rely on it so much like we do today. Wow, this is so exciting because I've mentioned this before, probably even in the podcast with Makund. If you haven't listened to that yet, I uh, would recommend it. Um, but yeah, what I was going to say is that when companies like this one are working on problems like these ones, then you kind of know that the industry is going somewhere and that there is being uh, progress made um, outside academia and outside the university and any other sort of institution, you're actually now uh, treating with even the business aspect of it. So it's pretty exciting. Thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge here, Sian. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure that people will take some really good, uh, have some really good takeaways from this podcast, especially in the uh, beginning where we were talking about the how to get into the field and basically the different backgrounds that can come into play. So thank you again. And where can people maybe reach out to you? Sure. Yeah, I think for sure. You can always message me on Twitter. Um, at, I think it's at Feyonce. Um So I think that's spelled like F-E-Y-O-N-E-C. Um, but I, I think hopefully, I think you can probably sure. like that. Um, but yeah, I think the best way is to really just get uh, to, to DM me on Twitter. I'm, I'm pretty active there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming again, Sion. And for you who are listening to the 2045 podcast, thank you for choosing to learn about the future. And I hope that you got some value out of this podcast. Remember that we have weekly episodes and that we also have a Twitter and an Instagram account at 2045podcast so you can learn a bunch of other things there as well. I'll see you in the next one. Bye.